0: David and worship team, good morning everyone. As you stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word, I want to just bring a word of thanks to the Lord for all that He's doing. And next week will be our first week with our new worship seating. And I want to give thanks to God that uh, most of the pews that have served our ministry for over a generation, over 40 years here, are going to go to good homes, ministries that greatly need them, to churches that have a great need indeed for them as they begin their ministry, both here in eastern Washington and in Mexico, with one of our church plants that's uh, been put together by Dwight Hires, who's with Northern Lights Ministries, a missionary whom we've supported for many years. And so we're grateful that God has a new generation of ministry for these churches as well as for our own. As we look to the Word of God this morning, I'll be bringing you a message, a special message on this Communion Sunday, out of Isaiah 53. And So, together with me, let us hear the Word of God. Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 6. Isaiah writes of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was despised and rejected by men Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is God's holy word. May its truth about sin and redemption pierce our hearts as never before. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for this marvelous passage that points to a marvelous person, the Lord Jesus Christ, in all of his saving glory. Oh, Lord, let us see your Son in greater majesty than we've ever seen him. Let his crosswork be revealed in greater depth than we've ever known it. Let our sin be seen in greater relief and detail than we've ever wanted to taste it but his saving work be drunk in by us and known in a deeper way than we've ever known it before. Show us Jesus Lord and all of the greatness of who he is in his matchless name. We pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Well, as we move into this text, it's in a way, a text of preparation next week. I'll be beginning and be beginning a new series We'll be going through the epistle to the Colossians. We're going to go through it verse by verse through the entire book. I'm looking forward to it. I've already done some beginning study and it's changing my life. It is a book about what I would say would be the incomparable Christ. It exalts Christ for who he is, what he's done, and also for who he is within us as we come to know him and what he'll do through us as we trust him the incomparable Christ. And so I thought in preparation for that, I would bring you a message that focuses on the true greatness of Jesus because there is so much that is misunderstood about Jesus Christ. There are many things that you might believe about Jesus. Some of them might even be true. But there is one thing you must believe about Jesus, and that's what I'll be preaching on today. The true greatness of Christ in his crosswork, as Isaiah describes it. I'm going to do it in two ways today. Two major emphasis of my, emphases of my message. First, I'm going to f- spend a few minutes in explanation and introduction about what I would call the cultural delusions over who Jesus really was. Delusions in our secular world and delusions among people that call themselves Christians. And then I want to get into the biblical truth, delusions revealed, truth explained about who Jesus really was. And to do that, I'll be moving out of the the chapter in Isaiah. It's a chapter I've preached from before with you, and I'll be moving over some territory I've preached to you before. But in the spirit of, of Peter himself, who said to his congregation, it does me good to put you in remembrance of these things. I'll be doing that today. So let's dive into it together on this Communion Sunday. First of all, let me spend a few moments on the cultural delusions over who Jesus was. There are a lot of them. In our secular society, many people have accepted mistruths about Christ. In fact, you can believe a lot of things about Jesus, even if you didn't believe he rose from the dead, if you were a non-believer in who he was. I certainly was that way in my early life as a skeptic. If you don't believe that Jesus was God and that he rose from the dead, you may have several opinions about him. You might believe, for example, that he's just a mythical figure. He never existed in space, in time, or in history. And that was the the point of view that I had as a skeptic. It's a minority view. Because history tells us, even secular historians confirm to us, the vast majority of secular historians, even atheistic historians, admit that Jesus did live in space and time. He was a figure in history in Israel and the time in which we believe he lived. So the mythical figure idea that I had was misinformed. I didn't bother to check history. I just went right to my biases like a lot of skeptics do. But there are people that still believe that today. If you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and you can also believe that if he did exist, he was just a misguided martyr. He was a philo- philosophical figure in Israel at the time in which he lived. And he... Uh, thought he was the Messiah, and so he gathered people around him, and he was misguided in his own mind, and his followers were misguided, and the whole thing got out of hand, and the politics ran ahead of Jesus, and he found himself unexpectedly on a cross, a misguided martyr. Lots of people believe that today. Lots of historians believe that today. Or you might believe that he was an inspirational teacher. By far in our secular world, among people that want to acknowledge that Jesus did exist, this is by far the majority view, that he was one in a long line of inspirational teachers, people that had insight into the nature of life or the possibilities of meaning. He's just one of those masters of thought, and that's all. So those are the delusions about Jesus in the world that doesn't believe he rose from the dead, that he was God. But there are some who believe that he did rise and who claim to have a relationship with him, who are Christians in confession, and they actually have some delusions about Jesus. They see him as a commodity more than Christ. They look at him as somebody, for example, who's primarily gone to in their lives. When they do go to Jesus in their need, they view him as a life fixer, someone whose power is available and whose teaching is helpful when they want to fix issues in their life that aren't going right in their marriage or in their personal financial life or their personal vision. Others are struggling with a lot of emotional hurt through how they've suffered in life through abuse and other things. And they look to Jesus when they look to him primarily as an emotional healer, someone who will move deeply in their emotional recovery. They've met what is known as the therapeutic Jesus. He's an image in their minds and a power source in their lives, the therapeutic Jesus. Others who are more confident, who have a life that's still more put together and who are more interested in achievement and meaning, look to Jesus as a purpose-giving Jesus, One who's there as a life coach. One who's there in his book and in his words to give them principles to live by, methods to use, principles to understand, goals to achieve. Lots of people who claim to know Christ believe in him primarily this way. The latest dimension of people that want to look at Christ in a way that doesn't quite capture him, is what I would call people who look at him as a missional example, as someone who gives us an example of what it meant to care for the suffering, and who what, someone who cared about injustice in our society, and who wants to right the wrongs within it. And they look at Jesus primarily as a missional example. But all of those things may be partially true in terms of what Jesus might do in your life. Oh, yes, he may... Fix certain things in your life. Certainly, knowing Jesus can bring emotional healing and wholeness to a great extent. And certainly, the purposes of God in your life are far greater than any purpose you might elect on your own. And certainly, Christ was and is concerned about suffering and injustice in the world. But those are all minor keys in the symphony of who Jesus truly is and what He's really all about. Jesus Christ is not essentially a commodity to be used or an inspiration to draw from for things in life. He is someone who is far more than that. You don't need a commodity. Listen, you need Christ. You need a Redeemer. Because all of those other things, by the way, can be handled in certain ways through other transformational things you can experience in life. If you want a life fixer, Oprah can do a pretty good job. Just get on her Book of the Month Club, and I'll bet your life certain parts of it can be fixed. Emotional healing can be done by a totally secular therapist, and I've seen results in in certain people's lives. And if you want purpose given to your life, the United States Marine Corps has a great track record with that. (laughs) You see, we look at transformation as evidence that we're dealing with the true Christ. Lots of things can transform your life, but only one person can redeem your soul. Only one person can deal with the ultimate need in your life, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not a commodity. He's the Christ. And that's why today I want to remind you about the true greatness of Jesus. He is your Redeemer and Savior. Let's move to that and move to Isaiah's great reminder of it as I move to the second dimension of my message where the majority of my teaching is going to come from today and that is the biblical truth of who Jesus was. We've talked about the cultural, even the Christian delusions about what he can do, but now let's go to the biblical truth of who he was. Simply your Redeemer and Savior and the only Redeemer and Savior Isaiah uncovers this truth for us. Look at the text with me. Open your Bibles. Turn on your Bibles, however you do it, wherever you are. Present here or watching there, take a look at Isaiah 53. We're going to deal with two verses in this sweeping text and they are two launch points for us to remind ourselves about the biblical truth of Jesus Christ. Look at Isaiah 53 please, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men and look at this phrase, a man of sorrows. This is on Isaiah's mind. He's is writing here about the full experience of Jesus as the God-man, as he came to earth, lived among us, and died for us. He was a man of sorrows. He repeats sorrows twice in the text, and he uses many other words to describe suffering. He uses the word grief. He use, uses the word stricken. He uses the word afflicted, and so on. Isaiah is not simply referring to the cross work of Christ. He's referring to the entire redemptive life of Christ. Notice he says in verse 3, he was a man of sorrows. Sorrow was his experience as a human being, not just in the hours of the cross, but in the years of his earthly life. It characterized him, Isaiah says. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. That means he had a long, deep Relationship with the grief of living in a sinful world among sinful people as a perfect God. And this talks about his entire life experience. We're going to open that truth to you. Isaiah says the life of Jesus was a life of sorrows. The Hebrew word for sorrows there can be translated as pains. And I want to build these two subpoints under this whole understanding of Jesus as redeemer and savior under this idea of the sorrow that he bore. Jesus lived as a man of sorrows in two ways. Don't miss it. Here we now go into the depth of the teaching today. First of all, I want you to know and understand the sorrow of the pain that he bore. Isaiah 53, 3 describes it. A man of sorrows, a man of deep pains, acquainted with grief. At this point, you might be saying, I think you're going over old ground, Pastor. I'm an experienced Christian. I've been under a lot of gospel preaching. I certainly understand what Jesus went through on the cross for me. I have echoes in my memory. I even watched that movie, The Passion of the Christ, Almost 20 years ago, I sat through it in a movie theater and I wept like a baby. I was overwhelmed with the image of his suffering. In fact, I could never watch the movie again. I was so struck, oh, pastor, I know what it means when it says he was a man of sorrows. Oh, no, you don't. The cross work was the culmination of his sorrow. But I want to point out to you today that his entire life getting there was also an experience of his sorrow that he went through for you. Isaiah said he was a man of sorrows, long acquainted with grief. You see, theologians believe that Jesus in his passion and what they call his humiliation was involved in something that, 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 that covered his entire life. You know, in Philippians 2, the Bible says that Jesus Christ was someone who allowed himself to experience the humiliation of earthly life. It says in verse 6, though he was in the form of God, he didn't account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. That's going from heaven's throne room to uh, Christmas morning, where he was born as a baby, being born in the likeness of men. He was without sin, but he lived in a physical body and he went through physical life and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Notice the humbling was lifelong. It wasn't just at the point of death. The writer of Philippians says he humbled himself all the way through his life, even to the point of death. You need to understand this was about his whole life experience. One theologian I researched this week put it this way, quote, in a broad sense, the penalty Christ bore in paying for our sins was suffering in both his body and his soul throughout his life. Let me repeat that. He suffered in both his body and his soul throughout his life. Though Christ's sufferings culminated in his death on the cross, Philippians 2.8, his whole life in a fallen world involved suffering. I want you to understand this because you'll understand and treasure him as your savior so much more when you understand what he went through even to get to the cross. Now, there were three realms of suffering that Jesus submitted to willingly, not because he had to, but because he wanted to redeem you. Three realms of suffering that he went through. Here's the first one. Number one, he allowed himself to experience the usual pain of life. This theologian I read to you said he suffered in both his body and his soul throughout his life. Almighty God, without sin, also became 100% man and he allowed himself to be humbled in a human body. He went through all the experiences that we have as humans in terms of physical suffering and, and dimensions of soulish suffering. What do I mean? Well, look at the Gospels. Jesus Christ was not some kind of weird figure that you, like you see in the old Hollywood movies. He wasn't a technicolor Jesus that kind of walked in this aura, was otherworldly, almost like an alien, with this kind of thousand-yard stare in his eyes, otherworldly. No, he's fully human, the Bible says. And as such, the Bible says he suffered many things. He allowed himself to suffer exhaustion, didn't he? So exhausted after a day and a night of healing hundreds and hundreds of people and pouring out without eating, without rest, that he was so exhausted that he fell asleep in the back of a boat that was going through a gale on the Sea of Galilee. And he didn't even flinch and open an eye. He was exhausted. How? He went through physical suffering. He allowed himself to hunger, didn't he? He was taken by the devil out into the wilderness and by supernatural power was enabled to be a longer than any human being ever would, 40 days and 40 nights. But he went through that to, to prove his greatness, but also to be perfectly suffering as a human being. But he ex- suffered ex- exhaustion like you and I do. He suffered hunger like you and I do. So his body suffered all through his life but he also suffered soulishly. Jesus suffered agitation. Maybe people are are freaked out when they read that, but the Bible records it on numerous occasions. Jesus Christ suffered agitation over the sin of people or over the resistance of people to truth, didn't he? There was one point or more when he looked at the disciples and he says, how long do I have to be with you, lunkheads, that's the literal Hebrew, (laughs) before you get it? Have I been so long with you, Philip, that you yet don't know me? Oh, faithless generation, how long must I put up with you? What was Jesus saying? He was experiencing agitation over the sin of people. Now, did he sin? No. The Bible says there's a dimension known as righteous anger. And he experienced soulish agitation, just like you and I do. He experienced soulish sorrow, soul suffering over the the grief that he saw from people's sin. I'm sure when he healed people, he also experienced a depth of compassion over them, over their physical suffering as they they limped to him or were brought to him. The soul of Jesus Christ experienced that. So much so that at the tomb of Lazarus, they looked at him and as Jesus wept over his friends, suffering through death, Lazarus had the suffering go through the doorway of physical death and they said, behold how he loved him. Jesus Christ went through the usual pain of life. He experienced what we experience. Going through physical pain right now, Jesus understands. Going through personal agitation and sorrow because you're suffering over the sin of someone you love and you're praying and wondering, will they ever turn back to Jesus Christ? He understands your heart. Secondly, there was the personal pain of obedience there are different types of pain in life there's the pain of sin on the planet, but there's also pain when you obey God, and a planet that hates God that 's run by by Satan will attack you and bring you personal pain. the personal pain of obedience. Hebrews chapter twelve, verse three Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. When you obey God the Father in a God-hating world, you experience persecution, don't you? And it is painful. It is something you have to endure. It's filled with hostility. Jesus experienced this all of his life. From the beginning of his life, when he was two years old, King Herod was so threatened over the news of the birth of a king of the Jews that Jesus Christ's life was threatened under a murder plot. From the very beginning of his life, Jesus was targeted by a world that hated him because he loved God the Father. The Pharisees were his enemies as he started his ministry. When they couldn't overcome him, they teamed up with the Sadducees. And together they tag-teamed to try and bring down the ministry of Jesus When they couldn't succeed, they brought in the lawyers to try and trap him in legalese and everything else. And Jesus was constantly dogged by their attacks and their murder plots every day of his ministry. And every day after he finished doing battle with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their lawyers, he went to sleep at night around a campfire knowing that just a couple shoulders beyond him lying around that campfire was a person named Judas whom he knew was the son of hell and whom he knew would betray him one dark night in Jerusalem. And after the betrayal of Judas, which Jesus tasted bitterly, he knew that the crowds would turn on him in that final week of Passion Week, and so they did. And he experienced all that hostility, all that hatred. He looked into the eyes of Pilate, who could have delivered him and should have delivered him, but would not deliver him because Pilate worshipped his own comfort and, 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 and lived under his own fear, and he knew what it was like. Jesus did for all of that hostility and pain. He knew what it was like to carry a crossbar on his back and to carry it through what is now known as the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrows. And on the way, he even bowed so that people could reach out from the crowd and pull the beard off of his face because the scripture said, oh, his beard will be plucked. He will be that humiliated. And he let himself go through it all because he wanted to be the perfect man to go to the perfect cross, to be a perfect sacrifice, to be your perfect savior. This is our Lord. Oh, the personal pain of obedience he suffered. Then there's a third dimension, which we're most familiar with, and that would be the unusual pain of being a sacrifice. This is the cross. There was the usual pain of life that we experienced. There was the personal pain of obedience and the hatred of a world against someone that loved God perfectly. Nobody's experienced that like Jesus. Jesus. And then finally, there was the unusual pain of sacrifice. He knew his death was coming, and he experienced the physical death of crucifixion. Crucifixion. Death by crucifixion, one of the most horrible forms of execution ever devised by man. He headed to that. He knew in every moment of his conscious life as a human being that that's where he was going. How would you like to live knowing the excruciating nature of your death? Knowing the day, knowing the hour, knowing that you were meant for it and you could not avoid it. No human frame could live with that knowledge except the perfect God man and he lived with it every day and night. And when he finally got there, he went through one of the most hideous methods of human suffering ever devised. The Persians invented crucifixion in 300 B.C., but the Romans perfected it. It took the wickedness of the Roman mind to figure out how to make crucifixion as excruciating as it turned out to be. It's interesting. History tells us that the Romans only practiced crucifixion in Israel and outside Jerusalem from 70 B.C. to 70 A.D., Only 100 years did they practice it in Israel. And yet the scripture says in Galatians 4, 4, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to come and be a sacrifice for us so we could be adopted into the family of God. How amazing to me it is that God the Father chose that slim 100-year span of time in all of world history where his son would be crucified and could be crucified. He sent him to a cross, slow death by suffocation, being nailed, blood loss, torment, slowly pulling yourself up to catch a breath and then falling down into suffocation until you could stand it no longer and you pulled against the nails to pull yourself up for another breath. It was hideous. The Romans simply called it riding the cross. And indeed, the Lord Jesus went there for us. My Jesus is not just a confused figure in history. My Jesus is not just an inspiring teacher from the past. My Jesus is not some kind of mystical commodity to call on when I want to use him in life. He is the Christ. This is the greatness of Jesus. So there was the sorrow. Of the pain that he bore both in life and in death. That's where it begins in Isaiah. But now go to verse 6 in Isaiah and you'll see that it got worse. Verse 6 tells us, verse 3 rather, told us about what Christ experienced as a man. Even the crucifixion physicality and the pain and suffering was all experienced as a man. He went through it without sin. But now if we come to verse 6, and verse 6 is talking about something that he could only experience as God. Only God could go through verse 6. Look at it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That's our sin. By the way, the Bible says everybody's sin. Jesus didn't just die for uniquely wicked people. It said every one of us turned to our own way. And look what God did with our sin. The Father laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why could only God go through that? Because every other human being has his own sin. He said it. Everyone, every human being has turned to his own sin. Therefore, Jesus, if he had sin, could not have died for his own sin and could not have died for ours. No, verse 6, is only possible if the Lord Jesus is fully God, sinless, and God laid somebody else's sin upon him. That's a marvelous truth. So there was the sorrow of the pain, of the sin that he bore, the pain first, and the sin now is the focus in Isaiah 53, 6. And that was worse. More awful than the physical pain of the six hours on that cross was something that Jesus had to endure in a deeper way. More awful than the physical pain Jesus endured was the personal pain as God of bearing the guilt for our sin. This is why Jesus said earlier in that week, now my soul is troubled even unto death. This is why he battled so much in Gethsemane. People think he battled in in, in Gethsemane in sweat drops of blood and said, Father, if there's any other way, let it be so. They think that's because he was afraid of the pain of the nails of the cross or the whip that would come to his back. That's not what I believe. He was the master of that. He was God Almighty. He allowed and controlled his physical death. He was not uh, in in great dread of the physical suffering. Listen, he was in great dread of what he would experience as God the Son when for the first time in forever, God the Father would turn his back on him. For the first time in forever, God would taste the sin of man. And the sin of humanity would be laid on Jesus Christ. That was an experience that filled his perfect being as God with revulsion. That was the worst dimension of the cross. That's why God shrouded it in darkness those last three hours. It was a symbol of judgment, darkness was, and it showed what God the Father had to be about and judging God the Son for my sin, but it was also just to hide The depth of the sorrow of that event in my mind. You see, out of obedience to the Father and out of love for us, Jesus took on himself all of our sins. You've got to understand that. Everything you've ever done in your past, everything you're guilty of today, everything you're going to walk to in sin in your future, everything you know to be sin and everything you never imagined was really sin in your life. God the Father, being the morally perfect God of the universe, knows all your sin. And he took all of your sin and he put it on Christ. The theologians call it imputation. He put it on Jesus as if Jesus owned it. It's as if these sins actually belonged to Christ and the guilt for them. Isaiah says word iniquity in Isaiah 53 has the weight of responsibility to it it's a word that's used to describe sin you know it was sin before you did it it's not just unintentional or sin or innocent sin if we can call such a thing that it's no it was sin that you went into with your eyes wide open God took it all And he put it on Jesus, and the implication of the word is that he put the guilt for it on Jesus, too. As much as if Jesus had committed it, Jesus tasted the guilt of it all. This is overwhelming to me. But the Bible bears it out. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's called the great exchange. God took every sin in my life, and put the guilt and the responsibility for it on jesus and then he punished it with his wrath every drop of the wrath i deserved and then when jesus rose from the dead that righteousness was applied to me the moment i believed the righteousness of jesus he took my sin i get his righteousness that's astounding but that's the great exchange Galatians 3.13 explains it more. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That talks about crucifixion. Talks about capital punishment for sin. You're a, you're, you're a curse to the Father because of your sin. And you and I deserve to hang on that tree. You and I deserve death and the wrath of God forever. Jesus tasted it all in three hours of time Under the darkness. What a mighty Savior. Out of obedience to the Father and out of love for us, Jesus took on himself all of our sins. The Father imputed them to Jesus. They actually belonged to Christ and the guilt for them as much as if he had committed them. Now, how could that have been experienced by the perfect person of God the Son who had never sinned and who hated sin? We can't imagine that. I've explained it to you before with a, what I would say is a very inadequate illustration, but I'll use it again. In your mind, think about this. Is there a sin that you swear you'll never commit? You're not perfect, of course, and there's some things that you struggle with in your life and there's some things you've done in your life that you shudder when you remember them. But you look at your life and you say, yeah, I've done some of those things, but I, I will never do that. Whatever it is in your mind. You think if you ever did that, you'd never be able to face yourself. You'd feel such revulsion over falling into that sin, over committing the unthinkable that you say, I'll never do that. Is there a sin you swear you'll never commit? Well, now imagine how you would feel what it would be like for you if you did commit it. And imagine where you would be personally the moment after you had done it. The moment after you committed the unthinkable in your life. Imagine what you would feel like. Imagine what you would be going through. The revulsion. The horror. Take that. Multiply it a trillion times, and then keep counting. Because that may come close to understanding the revulsion Jesus felt when sin was placed on him. Wayne Grudem, a theologian I've read a lot, explains it this way. Listen to what he says. Quote, In our own experience as Christians, we know something of the anguish we feel When we know we have sinned, the weight of guilt is heavy on our hearts and there's a bitter sense of separation from all that is right in the universe and awareness of something that in a very deep sense ought not to be. In fact, the more we grow in holiness as God's children, the more intensely we feel this instinctive revulsion against sin. Now, Jesus, he writes, was perfectly holy. He hated sin with his entire being. The thought of evil, the thought of sin, contradicted everything in his character. Far more than we do, Jesus instinctively rebelled against evil. Yet in obedience to the Father and out of love for us, Jesus took on himself all the sins of those who would someday be saved taking on himself all the evil against which his soul rebelled, created deep revulsion in the center of his being. All that he hated most deeply was poured out fully upon him. This must be why Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ endured the cross, despising the shame he wasn't enduring the physicality of the cross alone and the shame wasn't just people mocking him at the foot of the cross the shame was what he experienced through the weight of my sin Jesus Christ is my redeemer and my savior You see, when you begin to understand more of who Jesus is as Savior, you begin to understand more of who you are as sinner. You're not just somebody with a fairly together life who needs a, a teacher from time to time or a life coach to make you better or an inspiring example to lead you out so that you can change the world Through the great deeds you want to do? No. You don't need someone to transform your life. You need someone to redeem your soul. If you get nothing else about Jesus today but that, then you won't miss him in plain sight. He's no commodity, he's your Christ. And it was a bloody business. And it was a sorrowful cross. But he hammered it into a wonderful one, didn't he? If you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, what I have said to you today brings gratitude and comfort to your heart.